Hello, everybody. We just wanted to take a second and dedicate this episode to our Jake. One of kind, you could never really call Jake just a dog. He was a king, an emperor in his own mind. He was always there for me growing up. Through all the trials and tribulations of being a teen, Jake was by my side. We'd go for walks together, find our favorite lookout, and sit there for what felt like hours sometimes. Jake proudly perched beside me. When I was angry and frustrated with the world, Jake would be frustrated with me, and those big googly eyes of his would look at me, and I knew he always understood. Even when I was younger, doing what kids will do, me and my sister would play dress up the dogs and arrange marriages with the utmost pomp and ceremony. Watching TV became a new form of entertainment for all of us. Every time a dog, a horse, a cat, anything with fur would appear, Jake, alert to the TV as ever, would jump up from his spot and engage in his perceived foe with a mighty series of woofs accompanied by his signature move, standing on two legs and gesturing wildly with his two front paws in a sort of quasi-waving motion. The strength of Jake will never be forgotten, especially on those walks where he would need to stop and sniff every bush, weed, crack in the sidewalk, everything. It's a lesson I never knew I learned from Jake. Always stop and smell the roses. After all, what's the rush, right? Always looking for something to put in his belly, Jake was a true Garfield in more than one way. His vibrant orange fur became speckled with a very becoming shade of white in his later years. Something he grew into, like the finest of aged wine. So Jake, this one's for you. We love you, and we will cherish your memory forever. There is a place on Earth where things just disappear. Where inexplicable events occur, and where the vanished never return. You may be thinking of the remote and desolate Sahara, where blowing sands swallow men alive. Or perhaps the uninhabited jungles of the Amazon, its dense canopy hiding intrepid explorers brave enough to venture through its deadly terrain. Then, of course, there are the legends of the Bermuda Triangle, a graveyard of ships and planes. However, there is another place where unlike the desert, the jungle, or the expanses of the ocean, to vanish is inconceivable. In 1679, one of the earliest shipping vessels ever to navigate the waters of Lake Michigan set sail en route to Lake Erie. Le Griffin was a fine ship, sailed by a Frenchman named La Salle, 
transporting furs with his crew that had been traded from some of the local indigenous inhabitants. The crew reportedly made their way to a small island on Lake Michigan, where they made contact with locals. However, what happened after this is unclear. The Griffin would never return to port. Her entire crew and cargo vanished without a trace. This began a trend over the centuries where thousands and thousands of seaworthy vessels have met their demise, many returning later on to roam the Great Lakes as ghost ships. But what could possibly be the reason for so many wrecks and disappearances? And more importantly, how can some be lost forever without a trace in freshwater lakes? Tonight, we investigate stories from one of the most bizarre locations on planet Earth. Join us on Into the Portal for part one of a two-part series on a North American enigma, the Great Lakes Triangle. Welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. Hey, everybody. We're back. Here we are again. Yep. Another week. Another week. Just the two of us. Just the two of us this time. Nothing special for you guys. (laughs) It is something special. (laughs) (laughs) No, after a few really fun weeks of collaborations with with Chris and Marie with the Mad Scientist podcast and then Brian and Angelo at Double Density, Mm -hmm. it's kind of, it's nice to be back, just the two of us. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. It's a bit different too. We're recording in the morning. Which we don't usually do. Which we do, do not normally do. Yeah. No, both those, uh, the previous shows were recorded in the evening with those guys, and that was fun. It was really fun. You know, ha- it's more like just hanging out. I hope you guys enjoyed and, that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it, yeah, that part one, um, our last week's episode was the part one of that. Mm-hmm. And for part two, if you haven't uh, listened to that, that's over on Double Density's feed. So you can go exactly. doubledensity.net, and yeah. they're on all the same podcast platforms as us, too. So I'm on iTunes everywhere. Yeah, so go mm-hmm. check that out. Yeah. But today... Why don't you tell, why don't you give people a little taste of what we're getting into today? Well, today, today we are continuing with our Canadian theme. We are? Actually, you know what? No. It's partially. Partially. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> we are covering something that some might say sort of aligns with our title, like our, our show name, our yes. Into the Portal, because many of these... <sighs> Circumstances, phenomena, events, um, almost seem as if these people and planes and ships have just vanished into a portal. Yeah, sucked away seemingly. into the abyss. No evidence behind. No. So we are talking about... The Great Lakes Triangle. Mm-hmm. Now, once again, I felt like such a dum-dum looking into this because we're Canadian. I mean, we're from the West Coast, so we're a little bit of a ways away. Mm-hmm. But I had never heard of the Great Lakes Triangle. No. And I'm in, we're into paranormal stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're sort of new into it a little bit for some of these things, but it's, it's crazy. Some of the things that have happened at this place. It really is. And it's funny that we were exposed 
to Lake Baikal, for instance, That's but right. not to something in our own sort of country. Well, it's, it's funny. But... The only thing that came up uh, having to do with the Great Lakes when we were looking at Baikal was just how much bigger Baikal was than the right. Great Lakes. Yeah. Saying that, like, by volume, there was more water in Baikal than all the Great Lakes combined. Mm-hmm. And that was really the only correlation other than there being some, like, UFO sightings over the Great Lakes similar to yeah. Baikal, mm-hmm. which is just another... We talked about that with Brian and Angelo, the idea of UFOs and fresh water and yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Very cool. But anyway, so what's so fascinating about, like, I guess what I wanted to ask you this so you can tell the listeners, what was the most compelling that we're going to get into all kinds of crazy compelling stories, but mm-hmm. what was it that, I mean, for me, it was not knowing about it at all before, but like, what made you want to cover the Great Lakes Triangle? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, for all sorts of reasons. Uh basically diving into some documentaries, discovering some of the more mysterious circumstances, just the sheer suddenness of these disappearances, the lack of distress signals. Uh, Yeah, it's just, it's so fascinating that it is over a lake where you can see from shore to shore. Like they're massive, but it's fresh water. Yeah. It's not, it's not the expansive abyss of the ocean. It's like, there's... It's not like... Say, like, the Malaysian flight, what was it, 370, where it's like, that is, like, once it gets whipped up into the currents, who knows where that's going? It could be on the other side of the world. Exactly. This is contained, therefore. Which makes it all the more bizarre. Very bizarre. And there's disappearances, like we said, in the air, on the water, and other strange stories as well. Mm -hmm. But this is actually going to end up being a two-part series. Yes. So this is part one, obviously. (laughs) And... uh, And uh, just because there is so much crazy stuff to get to with this story. So basically, we are going to be covering everything on the water. Well, not everything, but the most compelling cases and disappearances of ships. Right. For part one. Yes. Part two, we're going to be focusing on the air. Yes. So that'll be mostly related to planes and that type of thing. (laughs) So... But to get us started off, I we both discovered this guy when we were watching the In Search of documentary. Good old In Search of it. Right? Good that old was, Nimoy. That was the starting off point. Yeah. <laughs> and he, the documentary started with this guy named Jay Leland Gorley. And he actually wrote a book called The Great Lakes Triangle, 1977. And so, we tried to acquire this book. Oh my god. But. It is, okay, used editions, paperback editions, run for $50 and up. Um, a new edition, like, you know, like... Brand new print or whatever. Yeah, obviously yeah. it's out of print right now, but if a brand spanking new edition yeah, yeah. would be anywhere between $250, $500. And this is on Amazon. Yeah. Oh, just crazy. Bizarre. <laughs> so but it makes tough, me want to yeah. read it a lot more. I know, right? right? I wonder if it's at the local library. Oh. I mean, we've been so busy, we didn't have time to go look. I mean, you can find oh so gosh. many excerpts from it online, so that's what we've done for this episode, obviously, and like yeah, pulled out stories, but... Why didn't we go to the library? <sighs> Because the parking in Kelowna is a nightmare. That's and why. we live, like, all the way across the city <laughs> from our university. And we live a, far, a long way away, so. too. <laughs> yeah. That's our excuse. Nevertheless, we, we unearthed the information. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I thought it was really cool how, like, he talked about... Well, he actually demonstrated for In Search of how the route taken by most planes is... Takes them on a flight path that they can see both shorelines. Yeah. It's about a 10-minute flight from one side to the other. Right. On average. So that would be a difference to the from the ships then, because they don't have the same sight line. Well, that's just it. And the ships are usually going lengthwise. They're not going widthwise. Right. So, like, as they're transporting goods. Yeah, that's right. From one end to the other type of thing. Yeah. yeah. And so it's very interesting because this flight path 
like I mentioned, you're always in sight of the shoreline and never out of radio contact, or you never should be out of radio contact. Right. Which leads us into the idea that, yeah, like, it's so mysterious. Okay, <laughs> just for an example, because the, the search and rescue teams, obviously they have, they have one of the best search and rescue teams in the entire world yep. on this lake. On Lake Michigan is what I'm talking about. Yeah, specific, I mean, there's five lakes. We should really say oh, this. So the Great yeah. Lakes is Lake Erie, Lake Huron, Huron, Lake Michigan. Lake Superior. Lake Superior and Lake Ontario. Right. Right. And then Lake Champlain is another fairly large lake that's just kind of a hop, skip, and a jump further east yeah. of there. So there's a lot of fresh water there. So we'll there. include a map just so people... I'm going to have on the front page of our website, I'm going to put up like a carousel of images. Cool. Relating to, yeah, all the different shipwrecks that were eventually found. And then also, of course, a reference map of these lakes so that people have a better idea of what uh, we're talking about. Awesome. But anyways, yeah. So this guy, J. Leland Gorley. Oh, yes. We already covered him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what were you Sorry, sorry, there? sorry. I was talking about the emergency response team. Yeah, that's sorry. right. That's I right, just yeah. kind of lost my place. That's okay. Um, yeah. So like I was saying, it's one of the best and most efficient search teams. And if you are ever... Like if well, you're this, missed... this is more um, relates to planes, actually, which I should be mentioning this in part two. But That's okay. essentially, if you're out of radio contact for more than 10 seconds, they're sending out a search team for you. Because that's how... Because there's been that many... Exactly. It's how ubiquitous. Yeah. Or disappearance. Disappearance. Yeah. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Presumed deaths. I guess they could be alive in another dimension. Yeah, maybe they're, we maybe they're to, on Mars. We will get to that. Maybe I just, you know... Just ended up just on the, just on the dark side of the moon. On the dark side, <laughs> you never know. You just never know. So, do you want to kick her off here with our inaugural uh, shipwreck? Shipwreck? <laughs> yeah, I don't even know. Yeah, because okay, here's the thing. Like we just said, like there's so many disappearances and shipwrecks and crashes and all kinds of things on these lakes. It's in the literally in the thousands. I can't remember what the exact number is, but I think it was 6,000. Something like that, yeah. Total. And they're in the finding last more and more wrecks or something. Yeah. every year. Every year. It's just absolutely mind-blowing. Because especially like, with new technology, LIDAR especially. Like, that's uh, yeah, really to find all this stuff, right? Yeah. Totally. And like you said, too, like with the search and rescue, like they're that paranoid. They're going out if yeah. something's, if no one's in contact for that long just because of the history of it. Mm-hmm. Not because there's any real reason. It could be a bright, sunny day. Yeah. But if they're not getting that radio contact, then they're out there looking because it's been so tragic. But mm-hmm. the first tragedy, I mean, if you if you believe in the story as it goes, was 1679 in the very the famous ship known as uh, the Griffin or Le Griffon. Le Griffon. And it was one of the um, it wasn't the first ship, but if it, it was one of the earlier ships that was um, you know a transport vessel on the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing about the Great Lakes is they're kind of all connected, right? So, like, there's these shipping vessels going. So, this one was built on Lake Michigan. Right. But it was, uh, its trade routes were up through into Lake Erie and, and you know, quite an extensive trade route. I kind of have, yeah, like a, a sailing route through Lake Erie to Huron, then Michigan. Right. Yeah. If that makes sense. And that was kind of confusing for us when we were doing the research because there would be times where you'd look up a certain ship and they would say, oh, it was sailing on this lake. But then you get another account where it's like, oh, and it supposedly sank in this lake. And you're like, hey, wait a second. How could it be both? How is it three different lakes that yeah. <laughs> describe it? But they different. are, in fact, all... But they're all, yeah, they're all connected. connected. Therefore, the ships would travel in between. But anyways, yeah. Yeah. Just so everyone... <laughs> just so, just so everyone knows. Yep. Cool. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of funny because it wasn't... act For the for the Griffin, it wasn't, uh, wasn't a long-lived... Uh, 
wasn't a long life for this vessel. It was literally its maiden voyage that tragedy <laughs> struck. So Very sad. the ship reportedly made its way to a small island on Lake Michigan to trade furs uh, with some local uh, native groups. Mm-hmm. And on its return to Niagara, the ship... Uh, Basically, her entire load of furs, which would have been a very expensive cargo at the Mm -hmm. time, and her crew of six went completely missing near Green Bay and Lake Michigan. Disappeared without a trace. Um, Looking back, there's some evidence that their weather might have been a little bit rough, but there's also people that say it wasn't at all. Yeah. Um, There's sort of conflicting accounts for the Griffin in terms of the weather that day, because that's typically the skeptic's response for most of these disappearances is that, oh, well, the Great Lakes have have notoriously unpredictable weather. Mm-hmm. And so it's very easy for something to just, you know, happen in the blink of an eye and the griffin, well, sorry, sorry, crew, you're at the bottom of the lake. Yeah. But there's so much mystery to this, though, because nothing was ever found until a couple things kind of surfaced later on. This is kind of the more interesting one because it has literally, it has not been recovered at all. Right. Like some of these ships we'll be talking about have eventually, like it takes decades and decades and decades. And so a lot of accounts describe it as simply disappeared, never to be found, blah, blah, blah. But then it is like later on in say like the 2000s actually discovered using modern technology. This one hasn't. Right. Nothing. Nothing. So there's a lot of controversy and a lot of different claims over the years to it. That's right. But and some people say it's just because it's obviously so old and because it would have been a wooden ship, but there's wooden ships that are very, very old and their wrecks perfectly are preserved perfectly preserved. Because of the frigid waters. Yes. And because it is fresh water. Fresh water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Very but funny. basically, I mean, you dug up a tiny a, a piece of this story that I hadn't heard where there was sort of a theory that the griffin had been lost. Well, and... okay, yeah. So the idea behind that... Which was sort of muddled for me at first was the idea that this guy LaSalle, who basically he commissioned the building of the Griffin, it was his almost like not a privateering, but he was funding himself. He actually didn't have any money from the crown, so therefore he was funding his exploration because his ultimate goal was to find a Northwest Passage right. to China right. through Canada. So he was hoping the Great Lakes would lead him through to that. And so the building of the Griffin was his way to fund this. So he okay. was using the fur trade. Uh, the very lucrative fur trade to fund his further expeditions. I see. So anyway, so the story goes that he was on the boat on the way to the island where the trading occurred, and then he actually disembarked and went further into the interior trying to, like, you know, he's just exploring away. Right. And then the the crew, the ship and the crew, this is the crew of six, returned. They went back to Niagara, but along the way, that's where they disappeared. And the one account goes that... Many months after the griffin was lost, a village along the Great Lakes was visited by a neighboring tribe, which was, it was only described as a tribe that had Frenchmen captives. So I'm assuming this is a native tribe, obviously. It has That's to be, what I'm obviously. Assuming. And these Frenchmen captives uh, had with them explosives and furs, both of which were th- items that the griffin had been transporting. And it was interesting because the account I read which we'll have in our resources, was insinuating that LaSalle took that as his crew betrayed him and sabotaged the ship and tried to sell the furs themselves and maybe presumably got captured by natives. I don't really know how that narrative really played out in LaSalle's mind. Right. But that was kind of... It's never really 
yeah, that was just a an anecdotal sort of thing to maybe try and explain. It's a little bit more wild, I think. Why the heck, like you even mentioned this right off the bat, why the heck would you sabotage a ship? Wouldn't you need the ship to transport the furs? That's like, the thing. I mean, furs are kind of a heavy commodity. Yeah. If you're going to, if you're going to, like, if there's going to be like a mutiny or you're going to rob your own, rob the ship or try to do something with <laughs> it, you're going to need that ship too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're not just going to, like, set up shop in the middle of the woods off Lake Michigan, and like, that's it. Call it a day. Build yourself a log cabin, sell some furs, and retire. You know what I mean? Like, you're <laughs> going to need to... Here, if you're going to steal something, you need to get it to a port, or you need to get it somewhere where you can deal with it, right? Yeah. This is sort of an awkward story. I don't know it if I'd buy awkward. it, because they would have had to have sunk the ship after to, like, get rid of evidence or something, and I don't really know if I'd buy that. Like, yeah. it's just not my thing. But, I mean, the point... Of bringing up this story first is just because the Great Lakes Triangle, this was the first sort of story that would be obviously linked to the direct disappearances of this area that swallows up ships and planes. And like we said, we're going to post maps, but just to give a verbal idea, mm-hmm. um, it's basically the triangle... I mean, it's massive. So basically, the tip of the triangle, isosceles-like triangle shape, roughly, is on the northwest shores of Lake Superior. And then the two lines come down, obviously, to to make the either sides of the triangle, on the furthest south point of Lake Michigan, and then on the other side, out east of Lake Ontario. Mm-hmm. So it's massive. It's not just like it kind of crosses over parts of the lakes. Mm-hmm. It literally the lakes are completely in the middle of this area that's become known as the Great Lakes Triangle. And the Le Griffin was the first unfortunate. The first and still to this day, one of the, uh, one of the, yeah, one of the last undiscovered, leading many to call it the white whale of the Great Lakes. And this is interesting too, because like I mentioned, there has been over 22 claims made over the years none of which have been substantiated thus far, a lot of being um, debunked. There was this really interesting account I came across, I'm not sure if you did too, Andrew, but it basically was um, from the 1890s, um, a man named Albert Cullis. He's the lighthouse manager of Manitoulin Island of the time, and he discovered a watch chain buried around a tree, And along with this watch chain, he dug a little further and found the 17th century copper and brass tokens. Interesting. So, yeah, it fits with the timeline. And then he, later on, he ended up discovering two caves around his island. This is all in the same as Manitoulin Island. Right. And he also found a total of six skeletons. And more 17th century artifacts, including tokens and tools that would have been used on board. So... Yeah, the, these were bolts as well. Uh, I'm not sure. I couldn't come across like whether it was wooden or steel bolts or like iron bolts or whatever. Right, like, like if metal. it would have matched up with the ship. Yeah, because there were some accounts that were saying like, oh, they're yeah, like these these bolts had uh, like oh, what's it called when it has like threading, like yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you can thread it through. Yep. So I guess some people disproved that by saying like there was no French. Like, like stuff like stuff, that, like hardware yeah, there like wasn't that? Any, there wasn't any bolts that actually were threaded from that time period. Interesting. So I don't know. Hmm. I, basically everything has been disproven except for one, one like find that still has yet to be kind of conclusively linked. It's the most 
likely to be linked, but it's, yeah, it's inconclusive. And and sorry, a lot of the debunking has come from this guy named Rich Gross, who is a local high school teacher, and he's kind of obsessive about this case in particular. He's been collecting data since the 1970s, and he actually recreated the entire 3,300-kilometer journey that LaSalle and his crew took from Montreal to the mouth of the Mississippi in their search for the Northwest Passage. Hmm. Pretty crazy. It literally took him... I think it was close to 10 months and he did it like he started off in June and went all the way to like April. Crazy. So he went through the winter months. Like that would be brutal. Took a sabbatical from uh, teaching, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. And then he eventually ended up joining up with this other guy, Steve LeBert, which is the discoverer of the, the mast. It wasn't a mast, sorry. It was called a, it was a wooden beam that they deemed a bowsprit. We Bose, are not. Bowsprit. We are not semen. Bowsprit. Bowsprit. <laughs> we don't know our nautical. So this is the <laughs> only piece of evidence linking that is from the t- same time period that has not been debunked as of yet, and it comes from this guy Liberto. It was a 2001 dive, in which he he actually swam right into the pole because he oh, had yeah, less than three. I think he said three centimeters or three inches of visibility in front of his because of the dive silt, mask. Right? Yeah, because, yeah, and that will play into some of the theories later on. Can you imagine how spooky that would be? Like you're diving on a and you literally just smack and into. You, you can't see anything. Like that would Oof. be terrifying. The Oof. only thing that would make it more terrifying is if it was in the ocean, because then Oof. there could be some real interesting there's still there. gonna be some rural interesting well, there are many lake monsters what if there's a crack in that's swallowing these things up a, a, a freshwater crack we actually didn't include that in our theories but maybe I'm a freshwater crack and just yeah. just gobbling ships maybe could know. be a thing i guess yeah yeah anyway that <laughs> so isn't I, in the notes so i guess we can come back to that so i guess maybe i'll just mention um before we move on just the idea that uh, the beam so yeah. he he was still fighting for the rights to go back and um, like further excavate. It was like he was in the court systems for years. Like I, I saw an article. He was still fighting it in 2013. He initially discovered it in 2001. So that's pretty brutal. Yeah. You're, like, and could you imagine? Like you've devoted tw- over 21 years of his life to diving. Yeah. Every year he would go back and dive and dive and dive. And he made it. Like he started. He had some really weird. Like it was a very mysterious. He wouldn't actually give its origins but he had some sort of map a reference map which led him to this poverty island where he discovered this beam and he won't yeah yeah so it's his little mysterious uh reference but anyways yeah so he he's still fighting i don't know if he's actually gone back and and been able to excavate further but Hmm. as of as of right now it's uh it's still up in the air for the uh and it was quite an extensive beam like it was 10.5 feet above the lake bed and it was basically yeah it was definitely attached to something solid below the surface of the sediments right right so yeah anyways that's kind of the the griffin that's the griffin the first inexplicable disappearance Mm -hmm. i mean inexplicable at the time and now looking back it's hard to describe it as inexplicable because there's so many theories, but none of them can be really conclusively proven. So it still just remains. It's one of those things where, yeah, history, where history just... swallowed it up. But yeah. yeah, there was a the next ship that we have though is even more bizarre than the kind Griffin. Of, yeah. It, so yeah. we're kind of skipping ahead because, like we said, there's like six thousand wrecks. 
Yeah. So we can't go through them all because no. this would be a nine thousand part series. And there's there's less documentation for a lot of the earlier ones too. Well, of course, because they're just. It's actually surprising. Even the. I mean, the Griffin became such a. Uh, it was iconic. It was yeah, mm-hmm. just an yeah, an iconic story. But then, literally, the exact same story of the Griffin would rehappen like thousands of times, and they just wouldn't become famous. But in 1875, there was a ship that would become famous known as the Cornelia B. Windiet. So, you want me to take this one? Sure. Okay. Let's hear it. This is interesting. I always like the ones that are old ships, like the the schooners, you know what Hmm. I mean? Like an old pirate ship looking vessel, you know what I mean? So, November 27th, 1875, a, a schooner known as the Cornelia B. Windiet left Milwaukee with roughly 21,000 bushels of wheat. Mm -hmm. I tried to look up what the weight of that would be. It's a lot. It's heavy. (laughs) I couldn't like... Not as heavy as ore, but... Not as heavy as ore or, Mm -hmm. you know, other whatever gold, you know, minerals I wonder if it was overloaded too. That's the thing that people think it was. People think it was overloaded. And what happened basically was it wasn't, I mean, November 27th, going on a journey in the winter, anywhere in the world, but especially on the Great Lakes was a dangerous time to do that. Mm-hmm. So this comes up uh, again and again with lots of shipwrecks where it's kind of in, in the winter time. It's in sort of, you know, November, December, January, February kind of type thing. Mm-hmm. But they still sometimes happen in good weather. I mean, good weather does exist in those months, even though it's not, you know, high time for shipping. But basically this ship was supposed to be done for the season, <clears throat> but the owners were hurting for cash. I think everyone was hurting for cash that year, right? It was a bad year. Yeah. It was a bad year. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was almost like there was a mini depression at that time. Like similar to the 1930s, basically, Mm -hmm. especially for shipping and for industry like Mm -hmm. that. So the owners were pressed for cash and they were like, you know what? We need to do one last run before the season's up because otherwise we're not going to be able to keep the business, right? Mm -hmm. So they kind of uh, whipped together a skeleton crew and overload the ship with more bushels of wheat than it could mm. supposedly handle hmm. is is one of the theories. It hasn't been conclusively proven. <laughs> and basically, the Cornelia B. Windiet heads out, never to be found again. Until much, much later. But basically, the crew never reaches their destination. Nothing ever... Never gets there, right? Mm-hmm. Many other ships are supposedly in the area, don't see it. Mm-hmm. It supposedly made its way through i believe it started so milwaukee so that would be lake michigan and it started heading up north because it was heading towards buffalo new york okay so it was heading through one of the straits connecting lake michigan i believe to lake erie which is one of the locations where it should have been seen but nobody saw it or there, at least there was no documentation that anyone saw it. None of, of the lighthouses. A lot of the ships saw... were already in for the year that too. Yeah, so... I I, th- I think what the people were talking about was on the coastline oh, because there's lighthouses okay. and stuff. And when you're going through the strait connecting the two lakes, it's quite narrow. Mm-hmm. And the ship, a ship like that, would have to be making very you know specific maneuvers to work its way through the strait, especially in winter time. They're going to be avoiding forming blocks of ice and things like this. Mm-hmm. Never made their destination. The ship was then found years later, and basically it was completely abandoned. They never found any remains on on board, and it was <laughs> no nearly crew. completely intact. It was in mint. Condition. Sorry, how many years did it take them to find it? I'm trying to find that right here. One sec. Because it definitely so was it launched in April 1874. You can still dive the wreck today. This is neat. Like, this oh, website gosh, I'm on right, right now is called ThunderBayRex.com, yep. 
and they've got like 3D images of all the wrecks. Like they've got this one. They've also got like a million other ones. Yeah, on here that I'm, I'm on that at. one right now too. We'll, we'll definitely, Defiance, that looks pretty cool. We'll definitely have that in the notes because you guys should check this out. It's really, really neat because there's just so many wrecks and you can see them and people do this as a hobby. Like there's diving societies on a bunch of the lakes, the Great Lakes. Yeah. And if you do the training and you, you know, you can go do shipwreck dives. Not on all of them. Some of them are, are um, set aside as basically like mem- memorial sites. Ooh, this is kind of crazy here. You like, did you read this part where it was like talking about how... Uh, some theorize that spray from huge waves might have coated the schooner with layers of ice. Yeah. And then that would have added a crushing weight to the heavily loaded ship, which it says here should have been carrying about 16,000 bushels of wheat, but was actually carrying the 21,000 that you mentioned Right, yeah, initially. it was overloaded, right. That's pretty brutal. Yeah. That's kind of scary. And then basically, yeah, it would just would have, handling it would have become difficult and yeah. then impossible. <laughs> but brutal. here's the thing, though. There's problems with that. Because the ship itself was so well intact on the bottom. And if it went yeah. down with such overloaded weight, uh-huh. and and if it was getting uh, hit with waves that were icing the surface and it sank quickly, or relatively quickly, yeah. then there would have been more damage to the hull when it hit the, hit the oh, bottom. Oh, that's, yeah. And it sank 138 feet, 42 meters. Um, oh, sorry, that's the wreck length. Sorry, the depth is 180 feet. Uh-huh. You know, that's that's a decent that's a decent distance from the surface. If it's a heavily loaded ship, there should have been more damage, more damage to the hull. Yeah. And there isn't. And it even says here too, it just says like this is very bizarre, but thousands of bushels of wheat lie protected still in the sealed cargo holds. And there's things like a stool is intact and a table are visible through the, the deck windows. Like you can look peer in and it's a stool. Like, that's weird. That's very, a very gentle sort of, like, I'm almost imagining a leaf falling through the air and yes, then gently landing. slowly sort of drifting to the bottom, you know? Or, actually, no, that would make sense. I was just going to say, what about the whirlpool theory? But anyways. <laughs> There's a lot of theories. I mean, yeah. we're getting some of them at the end for these shipwrecks, but it's just another very spooky thing because, yeah, it was dangerous, potentially dangerous weather. It was a, it was a bad time of year for, for sailing. Mm-hmm. There was no human remains on the vessel. Yeah. And there was minimal damage to the ship, which is completely Even contrary to the ideas that the three masts are still weather. standing. The rigging is draped yep. like how it should yep. be. So that runs contrary to the ideas that it was he- too heavily loaded, bad weather, got hit with a bad weather and sank. Some people think that it may have just got straight frozen in the ice and the crew abandoned ship and they mm-hmm. they fell through. And so their bones could be somewhere between where the wreck is today and the shoreline. Yeah. But they've never been discovered. How and then, many? How big of a crew was this? It was a smaller crew, I think. It wasn't. Okay. Uh, like it wasn't a, a massive crew. crew yeah, it was like maybe six or eight people. A lot of these accounts list somewhere between six to ten sailors. On one of the later ones, it was a crew of twenty-one. That's a larger but crew. That for was these that lakes, was for, for like sure. an actual like uh, freighter from the nineteen seventies, which we'll get into. Yeah. But this is interesting, too. Like, the Cornelia B. Windiot mirrors a lot of the story from the schooner, the Thomas Hume, that disappeared in um, 1891, May right. 21st, 1891. And it, was, it wasn't carrying wheat. It was carrying... Actually, no, it wasn't carrying anything. It was sailing empty. It was going to pick up a load of lumber from okay. Michigan. Yeah. Sailing empty from Chicago, heading towards Michigan... A crew of seven sailors, including the captain, 
And it was, yeah, it was basically very similar circumstances to what you were just talking yeah, about. Like where yeah. it's like, oh, it could have been, could have been a, a bit of spotty weather, but you know, like that's, that's never been actually confirmed. Okay. And it's very bizarre because it essentially disappeared without a trace. Right. With no wreckage recovered. So this one never had any wreckage recovered. <laughs> okay. Back up. Hold on. No wreckage recovered at the time. Okay. At the time. Okay. Which was bizarre because this is a wooden ship. And when a wooden ship goes down, usually you're going to have stuff floating. Like Some no stuff. pieces yeah. of lumber and yeah. whatever else. And... Yeah, so obviously the theory that it was overloaded is not the case with this one because it was empty. Um, but basically, it was very interesting. The, the The main theories involve the idea... That, this is hilarious. It's basically like... Okay, so the captain... The, some theorize the captain repainted and renamed the ship and then basically just sailed away into the sunset and just... Well, what happened to the seventh... What do you, what do you mean? Right? Others believe that a much larger steamer might have run down the schooner, and then the captain of the steamer swore his crew to secrecy. <laughs> so, yeah. Just like, tar- why though? Why would you do that? Because they don't want to go to jail. I don't know. No, but why? You mean like it was an accident? Like yeah. they accidentally yeah, rammed like, them and they exactly. were like, oh no. And then they went down. Oh no, Mr. Bell. You would think, well, I guess they don't really have distress, like no radio in those days, so they wouldn't be able to no, actually they had the radio white, out. They had the, the white flag. But it, it, again, is bizarre because this wreck was eventually recovered. This was in 2010 as a result of surveying. I think they might have been actually trying to recover a plane and they stumbled across this. Mm. And it was found completely right side up. Very similar circumstances to, like, as far as preservation and the intactness of the right. hull. Yeah, and to the Cornelia. Exactly. So it makes you wonder, like... How exactly it got to the bottom of that lake. Oh, yeah. You know, right. it's... Mysterious. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, just to, just to kind of, like, pepper in the paranormal here, is, as if we're not doing enough of that... <laughs> The the point of like no no crew left on the Cornelia B. Windiet, you know, the same sort of idea with the eighteen ninety one Thomas Hume, really well intact. Slightly different time of year, obviously. Like May twenty first, you're gonna have a lot better weather and things like that. Who knows Just, though it's but, spring. But you never know. The winds. They they're they're notoriously unpredictable weather on the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. But just the missing people and the preservation makes you makes me think about like abductions. I mean, and, and and we'll we'll get into that at the end, right? But it just makes you think about something like these people are disappearing. Yeah. The ships remain, but everything else disappears. Exactly. Really Spooky. weird. It's it's yeah, it reminds me of like the Flying Dutchman or something, the or Dutchman. you know, it's <laughs> the way that it reminds yeah, it reminds me of the Flying Dutchman as portrayed in Pirates of the Caribbean when it's it's almost like the other side of. Like, it's like the underbelly, the underside of the world or something. Or, like, the upside the down. The upside. That was wanna... the first upside down exactly. in, in uh, parts of the Caribbean there. Yeah. So, to me, it's like, what if... Yeah, what if it's possible? What if these ships are just, like, flipped to the upside down very suddenly? I don't know. And then they manage their way back, but, but there's no survivors. Or they're left behind in another dimension. Or they're left in another time. Every time, you know, every, anytime anyone brings up the Flying Dutchman, though, I don't think of uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. For some reason, I just always think of SpongeBob. Really? Yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> I, I, feel, I, I don't know if it was in, like, the movie, the SpongeBob movie, or if it was just one of the episodes, like, but there's definitely a Flying Dutchman. <laughs> a ghost ship. Another spooky aspect of this one is the idea that um, a lot of people claim to have seen it as a ghost ship. 
That's right. Yeah. And so, sco- and a, and a, a schooner. with no crew on on the deck. No, just very eerily kind just of coasting along. You know that would be if you were on the water, and you saw a ghost ship. That would be really unsettling. If you're on shore, yeah. it would be like more intriguing. Mm-hmm. I think that would probably be one of the. Not to mention slightly dangerous if it actually was like a physical ship. To sit and run into you, <laughs> it's out of control. Like a legit ghost ship that's just abandoned. Yeah. Yeah. Spooky. Which you don't, you know, yeah, that, that that that'll probably come up again in the theories section, but just about how that doesn't how that doesn't happen as much on the Great Lakes, like a Mary Celeste kind of situation. Oh yeah. Where it's legit left floating rather than Very true. mysteriously disappearing or sinking or just that's whatever. Just it. Yeah, it's always wrecks. And in a lot of these stories, they describe possible circumstances where it could be, like, there's, like, reefs in this, in these lakes, like, around, like, they line islands, so some sailors, uh, some sailors, too, were relying on maps that were actually out of date, and they didn't properly convey all the dangers and all the, the, yeah, the shallow waters and things like that. So that's another thing to account for as well. Especially in this next case we have, which was in 1927. And that was another... Well, this was actually the first case of a couple cases where we see two ships traveling in tandem. And it it was in stormy weather. It was these two ships. One was a freighter called the Quaidoc, and the other was called the Kamloops. And again, we're in the winter season. This is December 6th, 1927. Okay. So... The Quaidoc was the leading ship, and it apparently, uh, on its way, encountered these jagged rocks, and, okay, so this was from, I actually don't have the name of the, of the... What are you trying to find? Island. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of little tiny little islands in these lakes, for sure. Yeah. But anyways, they... Yeah, so the Quaidoc encountered it. They were having some radio communication issues. There was, like, there was fog, and at one point, the Quaidoc lost communication with the trailing Kamloops when it was sort of roughly heading in that direction. But there was never any distress radio from the Kamloops. And this is 1927, so they do have radio, so... Well, there was no distress radio. mysterious. And and I I read into it a bit more, and, like, the Quaidoc... The, so yeah, the trailing Kamloops was heading towards the rocks. The Quaidoc tried to warn them. They were like, yeah. they were firing their horn and being like, you know, trying to get a hold of them over the radio. Mm-hmm. And the before they were really concerned and kind of, you know, firing the horn to try to get a hold of them, they, they did receive one radio transmission from the captain just saying oh. that they were good. Like they oh, was like, yeah, okay. everything's okay. Um, but this was before huh. they were approaching the rocks. And then the Quaidoc was like, you know what? doesn't look like they can see it because of the heavy fog. Okay. And they tried to warn them, weren't able to get a hold of them. The fog lifts, like you said, and... They were just disappeared, just gone. gone. Which is weird, too, because you would think if it was dashed on the rocks, it, it would have taken a second. It would have, yeah, it wouldn't have just been instantaneous. Or there well, would not have that been... It would, like, yeah, obviously this... I'm, I'm imagining this happening over a series of a day or a night kind of thing, like a, like several hours. That, right. that this whole, like, you know, like, because it's, it's moving slower than we imagine. It's not like a plane, right, where you're like, here's my position, and I'm going to be there in, like, five minutes. It's like, you see your position. You can't really change position too 
too quick with a ship, but it's like, no. it's just moving in slow. It's almost like slow motion. Right. So. And you're totally blind when you're just using radar and even if it's clear sunny yeah. day, if you're at a distance when you're dealing with ship, ships, obviously. Yeah. Depending on your position. So that's an interesting one because yeah, like you said, if it hits the, if it did hit the, they just assumed that it hit the rocks. Yeah. They were like, just it, disappeared. They, they had to have hit the rocks because there's nowhere else it could be. Mm-hmm. There is no way it could have moved out of their radar or out of sight from mm-hmm. where the Quaidoc was. And that's super weird. There's For the Kamloops to have sunk that quickly, hitting those rocks, mm-hmm. it would have had to hit them moving so fast and so violently. And then in addition to that, been helped by terrible weather with swells freaking washing their sailors underneath the water because they would have, if you hit rocks, you're going to freaking hop in a lifeboat. Yeah. Right? Or something. There's going to be think? people. Atten- unless, unless there's no point because you're like literally like grounded up on to the rocks, right? So if you yeah, drop the lifeboat down, you're just dropping it onto the rocks. But if you're rocks. grounded <laughs> up onto the rocks, then the ship's going to be there. It's not going to sink. That's true. Well, there was a, what was it? A life preserver was found that was, basically all that was found until the following spring and rescue crews did discover a few bodies washed up on shores and then no other wreckage or bodies were discovered until the late 1970s so that's like a 50-year gap but the cool part about this one is old man whitey old whitey (laughs) old whitey the ghost of grandpa. <laughs> nice voice, that's oh, awesome. Dear. Oh, oh dear. Oh dear. You know, I gotta get the gotta old old timer yeah. voice in there. <laughs> so this uh, this was first discovered when divers in the 1970s went down to explore the wreckage, which again was incredibly well preserved, which adds to the creepy factor, right? Because it's almost yeah. as if these could have happened like the week before or the month before. And they're just well sitting there. preserved. Like I saw it photos. obviously did not hit the rocks. Well, that's true too, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, like, like there's not a lot of damage, and it's yeah, it is bizarre. Like there was food, like it's inexplicable. The, yeah, yeah, it was kind of cool too because like just on the note of like preservation due to the temperatures and the right. late condition. Yeah, there was like packages of candy still intact. Do you have a photo of that? Don't you? I, yeah, I'll include that. I thought that was really cool, though. Would you try a piece of that candy? This is it, though. Like, you can't touch anything if you're going down there to dive. Because, like, even the Kamloops, the Kamloops is only for super experienced divers. Like, more recreational dive sites are located all around this one island. That is because totally, it's a... I think it's called Isle Hot. Or, no, no, that was from... That our, was from the... Uh, that's, 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 that's Nova Scotia. Pirate Ned. Yeah, <laughs> that's a different spot. Okay. That's the Bay of Fundy. Go listen to Double Density Pod okay. to, to pick up on that reference. Yep. <laughs> Anyways, uh, <laughs> but, okay, so, yeah, the Kamloops is in a location that's a lot deeper. I'm not sure of the exact depth, but you need to be, like, it's beyond recreational diving. It's, like, basically, like, professional development dive site. Right. And... It, at all of these dive sites, if you touch any single thing, you're basically dooming it for everyone else because they're just going to close it. So it's like yeah. super strict regulations and rules. Well, not to mention kind of stuff. from the sailor's perspective, when you dive on these sunken ships, these wreck sites, you are potentially cursed just by Ooh. just by going. It's like going to a grave, right? And it's that's like digging the case up a grave. This, yeah, exactly. With this old whitey, um, apparently he was like following around the divers. Like, underwater and they would see, ghosts? Yeah, an underwater that ghost. That is the freakiest thing I've ever heard right? of. Right? 
And it was creepy because old Whitey, his body was actually well-preserved and still inside the cabin of the ship as well. And what was described, like, they had photos of it. And then they also had photos where they had captured a ghostly image. And that's what they called old Whitey. And it basically was following them around. And it was very friendly. It wasn't, like... And even the the body, too, was kind of, like, it would kind of, like, float and just kind of, like, chill with them. And they were just kind of, like, oh, yeah. Yeah, Just hanging out with... A dead body <laughs> hanging out with us. Oh, like, dear. And it would just kind of, like, float gently and just kind of, like... They described it as having a serene expression, kind of smiling and really creepy, though. Very creepy. Really, really, really creepy. And, yeah, and it was also described how they would... The ghost and the corpse were both seen, but never in the same room. So it's not like they were, like, confusing the corpse for the ghost. Right. If you could even do that, really. Like, I don't know. You know, that (laughs) seems surprising that there would be such a friendly ghost, like, related to a supposedly violent shipwreck. Yeah. Because these, I mean, and and, and this next one we're getting into after, uh, yeah, after this, after the 1927, the Kamloops, was, was definitely more of a Canadian tragedy, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Has been... Um, but it's gone down in history as one of the most strange, unexplained um, shipwrecks. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely, arguably, the most famous on all the Great Lakes. Yeah. Other than the Griffin, possibly. Other than the Griffin. Because this one is within the last 40 years. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you want to dive into that one next? Sure. So, 1975 was the the tragic sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which was a a freighter. Mm-hmm. Um, it had a relatively small crew, but it was carrying it was carrying ore, right? Or coal? It was iron ore pellets. Okay, iron mm-hmm. ore pellets. So, and it was overloaded by about five tons. Right, and they they determined that after, obviously, as a uh, potential reason for the uh, the wreck. But basically, this is how the story goes. So, 1975, once again. The ship is out in November, but... Traveling in tandem. Traveling in tandem with another ship uh, known as the Arthur M. Anderson. Uh, And the Arthur M. Anderson wouldn't sink that day. (laughs) So, uh, um, traveling in tandem across Lake Michigan to Lake Huron, uh, the ships were always in uh, sight of one another. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's actually just because they were traveling together or if that was like a safety thing. I wonder. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it probably was a safety thing as well. But basically, the crew was really successful. Um, the, the ship itself had been was was in fine condition. The crew had, you know, the captain had twenty years experience. Everyone knew what they were doing. And over how many successful voyages? It's like over seven hundred. Oh, seven hundred and forty something successful voyages with this ship. It was like the ship to be on. It was it was described as the one that everyone wanted to work for, mm-hmm. like on the lake yeah. at this time. And the relatives are still alive, and, and they've been interviewed about this over and over and over throughout the years. But um, basically, okay, like, it's hard to, to kind of describe how the story went, because nobody really knows. It's basically just yeah. the theories as to what happened. But Well, you can th- take a lot from the Andersons crew, too. Why don't you pick it up from here? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm struggling. You're struggling. <laughs> well... Yeah, the account that I had was that it started off as a pristine day, clear weather, sunny yeah. skies, all this kind of jazz. Yeah. And quickly developed into a storm. Uh, it was a system with about 90 mile an hour winds, 20 foot high waves, and both of these 
ships were being buffeted by this storm. Yeah. And the Anderson did have some, again, some radio communication. They're kind of going in and out between the fits, and I'm just going to refer to it as the fits. But. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so he, the captain, the captain was kind of keeping an eye on these, on the, on its, yeah, on its partnership, the fits, and essentially kind of noticed that they were drifting pretty dangerously because of these winds. Right. The original route was supposed to be much more central, and they ended up being pushed to the eastern side of the lake, which was pretty close to, yeah, the shoreline, and then also, also took them on this more dangerous route through a very narrow strait, okay. separating the mainland and this other island that was nearby. So it was kind of this really, yeah, it was not a very good place to be at. Yeah, okay. And <laughs> Clearly. Exactly. And at one point, the Anderson's captain was radioed by the Fitz, saying... This was earlier on. It says that they were tilting and taking on water, but it doesn't say where this water was coming from, if it was coming from a possible grounding that occurred in this shallower strait, or it could have been from the waves coming up over the tops of the ship. Right. Because it was overloaded. It was it was very low in the water yeah. because of the extra five tons of iron it was carrying. Yeah. So, uh, there was another radio contact further along at about 7.10 p.m., and this was the first mate of the Anderson. His name was Clark. He managed it to get in touch with the Fitzgerald and asked him about the condition of his ship, to which the captain replied, well, fine. <laughs> well, fine. I've seen, we're fine. Sorry, not well, fine. But, we're uh, fine. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, there's variations on that statement, but same idea either way. Yeah, yeah. There is an alternative version to this where there's snow. It was described. I don't really buy into this version. It just says basically that there was a sudden snow flurry that came up. So I guess a different type of storm. And then it just obscured the view of the Fitz from the trailing Anderson. And by the time the Fitzgerald disappeared, uh, it lifted up. And that was kind of the, that's a little bit more of a um, glossed over version, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And that was from In Search Of. It was just more of a, yeah. Right. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know. There, but- there definitely was... The ship was recovered. But basically, just just to finish that story, the the Fitzgerald goes down, Mm -hmm. all hands on deck with it. Very suddenly. Very suddenly. Yeah. Very violently. Very violently. But, and yeah, this is is one of the main differences too, right? Because this ship, when they went and actually surveyed it at the bottom of the lake, they noticed that it had a ton of damage to the middle section. Yeah. And that could maybe be explained by the... Uh, trajectory of the ship as it careened down and then hit the floor of the lake. Right. And then it's kind of just like, because obviously... The weight of the load crushed The, the weight would have been pushed to the front. Like an and then accordion. It would have, it, yeah, exactly. So it would have it would have nosedived a little bit and then just kind of crunched along and just kind of like, you know, just... Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so that's one theory. There's another theory, though, that the crew failed to tie down the the tops. I can't remember what they call it, like bulkhead type things. So what what would have secured the load? So many people discredit that, though. They say that that's not an option. Yeah, and I'm one of them. I discredit that. I mean... And the only evidence to support that is the fact that the the bulkheads, the top... I don't even know if I'm referring to that. I think that's a totally wrong A bunch of the openings, whatever. We're not not (laughs) the top, The top hatches. Yes. Where the cargo would have been loaded onto the ship originally. Yes. Those were missing. 
They were, yeah, they were blown off. They were just blown completely And there were other port, other, you know, whatever, openings, ports, whatever, on the ship that were open that wouldn't have been, and that's presumably from the impact, right? Yeah, like you said, like, everything blows out because of the... It's like you wouldn't think that something sinking underwater would hit so at such a great rate of speed and such impact, mm-hmm. but it's like the sheer weight of this vessel is just so much. It's like yeah. however many, like the load itself was what, how many tons again? It was five tons overweight. But it, was it was like almost 26 tons. Yeah, plus you've got the weight of the ship itself. It's a massive ship. So it's enormous. Now they, I mean, yeah, and there's, do you want to get into theories about the Fitzgerald right now or did you want to save that for the end? Because the thing with the Fitzgerald... Sorry, what were you going to say? <laughs> Should we? Should we? <laughs> Just go on with your thought. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like you said, it's like... The the weird thing about the Fitzgerald is that... One, it... Oh, no, I'm losing my train of thought now. Now I'm on to the Jacques Cousteau section of my notes here. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. okay. No. I would like to briefly cover this before we move on. To, sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. Just the idea that it probably was a combination of circumstances for the Fitzgerald. Right. My prevailing theory and a lot of other prevailing theories like that people have are, is the idea that it was a combination of uh, a shift, a shift in the, the, the path, the, the ship's path. Yeah. Leading to a grounding off in shallower waters in that strait, which would have resulted in a slow uptake of water through the bottom of the ship that might not have been detected for hours at first. Right. And then by that point... Oh, and the other part of that is that the captain could have actually, um, in his mind, justified the, the, the buffeting and scraping of the bottom of the ship to just the storm. Right. And the displacement of water caused by the storm. Because maybe if it was calm waters, there wouldn't be the rocking and buffeting and then potentially the contact with the bottom of the, yeah, the, yeah. the lake. Right, that makes so, sense. So, anyway, so then moving on, so this is a few hours after it's sort of moved through that strait, and then you get these massive, yeah, the 90 mile an hour winds, you get 20 plus foot high waves, and then essentially what happens is it just nosedives. Yeah. On on the, well, the, the graphic that we had was basically it would have been pushed over by a massive wave and then just nosedive from there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's kind of where I feel it's the most logical. Yeah, it is. But it's like, at the same time, you've got the Arthur M. Anderson, who's not that much further ahead, who's makes it to their final destination scot-free. Yet, out of, out yet, of sheer luck. Yet, yet not, yeah, and that's just <laughs> it, though. So it's like, it's not a question of whether or not that didn't have like I I'm with you I think mm-hmm. that's probably the most likely explanation mm-hmm. but what makes it so fascinating in relation to this Great Lakes Triangle is there was another ship just like it right up ahead that makes it off like I said totally fine and yet there's these microcosm anomalies of just sheer like the craziest weather giant waves yeah. or you know, stuff just all of a sudden... Because this is a massive ship being piloted by an experienced crew. A freighter. The like one, something you see on the ocean. Yeah, it's massive. For for something to be sunk by that, by a wave in a lake, it would have to be a tsunami yeah. proportion wave, yeah. right? And people unless think the ship's that, already compromised. Unless it's already compromised, which it could have been because of the extra weight or whatever, mm-hmm. right? But then the weird thing is, is like they would have had to... Like if they ran aground a little bit, if they were pushed off course and were in a shallow section of water... How could you have not known, if you're that experienced, you're just going to attribute those sounds or like things to the storm? It's like, how would you not know you're taking on water? The analysis of the ship 
when they went dove down to look at it was that it was taking on water for probably three hours before mm-hmm. and no lifeboats were put in the water nobody did anything so the, the the controversy comes from where that water came from if it was coming from the bottom of the ship or from the top because right. of the if the caps weren't sealed properly right right Mm-hmm. And obviously you're not going to abandon ship in a lifeboat if there's that violent of a storm. You're not going to make it, obviously, right? But So that <laughs> makes sense. But at the same time, if the ship starts to go down... Yeah, where's the escape pod, man? Right, there's got to... Like, there's... It ha- it would have had to have gone down so quickly that they didn't have time to react. And that's and, kind of the main... And that's the, the main theory. Motion, yeah. But for that to happen, that is... We're talking about anomalous waves from the Ogopogo episode, number two, episode number two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an anomalous wave of epic proportions because <laughs> that's insane that's insane for that to happen on a on a freshwater lake in inland north america it's bizarre fairly bizarre anyways very difficult to actually yeah it makes me very together. afraid of going on a sailing trip on the great lakes ever that's for sure yeah i think i'll stick to like christina lake where i can like literally throw a rock across <laughs> <You're> kidding, <laughs> <hey>? <laughs> oh man so, that kind of wraps up our shipwrecks on Lake Michigan, like, specific to Lake Michigan. I know we did kind of, in passing, mention a few... Yeah, like, like connections to Lake Erie. And... Exactly. But I think it's about time to take a break. I think so, too. So, let's, uh, let's have a quick word from our friends over at Hillbilly Horror Stories. Sounds good. Hey guys, my name is Jerry and I'm the host of Hillbilly Horror Stories. You are not doing this without me. Well, that just happened. I'm his co-host and wife, Tracy. At least for the moment, and we are the hosts of Hillbilly Horror Stories, a mostly paranormal podcast, where we also cover anything creepy or unexplained. But mostly paranormal. Yep, I already covered that. What makes our show different from the other shows out there is that I'm going to tell you and Tracy a story. But I've never heard the story, so you're going to get my genuine reaction. There's probably a good chance that I'll ask the same questions that you guys are thinking at home. It's been said that we're scary enough for the true paranormal fan out there, but also funny enough for the skeptics who just want to listen in and have a good time. So hit that subscribe button anywhere you listen to podcasts and see why we have a five-star average rating on iTunes. And we're back. Hmm. Yeah. So make we, sure you go check out those hillbillies over there. We love those guys. That's it, it's such a great show. It is really fun. Great laughs, but tons of awesome paranormal stuff too. So yeah, yeah. Go check out hillbilly hillbilly horror stories. I can't even. I'm stumbling all over my words today. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we're kind of uh, we're not at the end yet, but we're slowly moving towards uh, the end of part one here. But we have mm. an interesting missing persons case related to uh, the Great Lakes Triangle mm-hmm. and. You could argue even the miniature Lake Michigan Triangle that is within the Great Lakes Triangle. Yeah. Um, did we mention that earlier? I can't even remember. We did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you started off. You covered the the triangular the shape, the of rough, the rough, just of Lake Michigan because there is another map, and we'll include this too in our little carousel of awesome photos. So yes. You guys have lots of references. Yeah. Um, things like yeah, like the the idea that the Great Lakes, like there's a triangle extending over the entire. All of them. So. <coughs> Excuse me. So anyways, yeah. multiple triangles. There's so many triangles, so man. So many. It's not a bowl. It's not. <laughs> it's not a b- The universe is like the human hand. <laughs> you got sector eight. Okay. <laughs> We're going to move on here. All right. Do you want to 
talk about I feel like you pulled out more info on this dude. It's not exact. I don't have, like... I only heard, like, a crazy blurb, like, forever ago, and I was like... I honestly attribute it to the, like, Hudson's Bay slash, like, uh, like, Arctic for whatever reason. I don't know why. Maybe because I thought he was... Donner was searching for... Oh, okay, like, searching uh, for Northwest Passage. Gotcha, gotcha. But, sorry, I had that totally wrong. Yeah, and you didn't have it wrong. I think, like, when I... Yeah, like, when I googled Captain George R. Donner, like, lo- there's lots of cases that are very similar to this, and, I mean, you could even argue that, like, the Mary Celeste ghost ship is a similar sort of case to this, because the ship itself is fine, but the people are gone, where this is just one person, just but it's one. the same sort of idea. Yeah. But basically, the bizarre case of Captain George R. Donner, one of the one of the most unique of the Triangle cases, so it was April 28th, 1937, when Captain Donner mysteriously vanished from the cabin of his ship. Mm-hmm. So, after guiding it through icy waters with his crew on a very successful trip, the captain went to his cabin for a rest. <laughs> and, uh, He's like, not enough work for today. Had a, let me give the cup a rest. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, so, it was believed to be, you know, a few hours later uh, when there was some, you know, captainly duties to be done. And uh, <laughs> I don't no, I think, know what I those think would what be. They, what, the crew member was going to alert him to is that they were coming into port. Okay, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you might want to be awake for that. Might want to be. Might need to be awake for that. Anyway, (laughs) so they go to wake him up or get him or whatever, and there's no answer. They're they're knocking on the door. The door's locked. Can't can't get any response. So eventually they're like, they have to break the door on. So they break in the door. The cabin is completely empty. The port window on... You mean like there's no furniture in there either? (laughs) It's been gutted, man. There's nothing to keep us robbed. No. <laughs> Just got robbed blind. <laughs> no, the, the furniture was there. Okay. Captain Donner is nowhere to be seen. Hmm. Uh, the porthole window so, sort of thing was closed as well. And there was no reason for him to be gone. There was no, you know, open mm. bottle of liquor on his desk or whatever. Mm. Like he was uh, drinking himself into like Oblivion. Tr- committing suicide or something and like drowning himself or s- something like that or whatever. Oh. But the door was locked from the inside and somehow, some way Captain Donner disappeared. And to this day it remains unsolved. The body was never found. Nobody ever found him. Nobody knows what happened to him. What? Bizarre. Who, who was this? Who was this guy? Who was this Captain Donner? Well, seems like a mysterious figure like i honestly didn't come up with much information on this dude he's kind Mm -hmm. of a ghost yeah what if he was a what if that was an alias what if he was actually like some sort of crazy like war criminal or like or not war criminal but just criminal in general no no he he, okay so captain george r donner he was the cap the the freighter was called the o.m mcfarland and the mcfarland had Picked up uh, 9,800 tons of coal in Lake Erie, uh, Pennsylvania, and it was headed west uh, through the lakes and was bound for Port Washington in Wisconsin. And uh, that's the story of the ship. It's like he was, uh, by all accounts, he was a reputable captain. That uh, It made his disappearance all the more bizarre. Um, yeah. This Captain Donner. I don't know, man. I think he might have been an alien. You think he was an alien? I think he was an alien. We'll have to ask Rob. And I, I it's so funny, you know, I'm like re-googling around because I'm like, who the hell was this guy? And all I'm coming up with is the Donner Party. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not yeah. what I want. The, what's interesting about that one, whether you believe it or not, is the idea that, like, for once, it's not a shipwreck. 
The ship made it in. The crew survives, but it's yeah. just this one case of, of, of this guy disappearing. And there's no other, like, mysterious, like, there's no orbs sighted or no, like, you know... Not uh, that I could... Uh, no not, not that I ship. No, yeah, just other <laughs> random... Yeah, like a portal hole open, a black hole open up. You know, what other, what else could it be? No, and I, I didn't come across anything like that. It's just, uh, it's strange because, okay, when I think about ships disappearing or people disappearing, whether it's the whole crew or whether it's one person, mm-hmm. in the case of one person, when I'm thinking about it within the triangle, it's, <laughs> I picture it almost as if like the ship's traveling along a certain path within the triangle mm-hmm. and makes some sort of like a turn and like the back corner where this cabin of the captain happens to be happens to like, you know, cross over this like micro this spot on the lake where literally it happened to be just that one person from the ship that gets that ends up in another dimension or something or just like ends up somewhere else because the rest of the crew was there yeah you know what i mean so it's like it's easier to talk about those types of things when an entire plane goes missing or an entire crew goes missing Mm -hmm. but one guy with the door locked on the inside is sort of uh changes things a little bit it's interesting I'm having images of that one X-Files episode pop in my head where it was the, oh, what was the name of that dude? But he was a repeated uh, alien abduction victim. And there's the one instance where they're in the plane. He's on a commercial air airline just as a passenger yeah. and then they have this moment where basically time freezes and he gets extra- and extracted he gets, yeah exactly he's like literally levitated on his own plane yeah with no no other like you know um circumstances like say uh like the suction like no one's sucked out of the plane because right. the plane doors open or whatever yeah. so that's what i'm kind of picturing in my head like what if this captain donner's just like he's like beamed out of his cabin <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, we're getting into some crazy territories here. We but kind it's like, of are. But it's a crazy story. Yeah. To me, I'm actually a little bit miffed. I just don't understand why... Well, maybe he was just on low sleep, but why would the captain go to sleep when... Well, I guess maybe he's just having a quick nap. Whatever, I mean... And, like, if this was during the middle of the day, like, I wonder when they were nap, actually man. landing, like, what time right. because it's almost mysterious to me like why would you get the ship you're ready to go you know you're gonna be landing in less than three hours so then you go for a little rest like what is that maybe the rest part is just an embellished aspect of the story it could just be that he went to his cabin to do whatever the heck he wanted to do whatever you're going i guess it's the captain's cabin it's not out of yeah. the ordinary for him to be in it obviously no matter what time of the day it is i guess right yeah, so, I don't know. It's just weird. It's like, okay, okay, everybody, you all finish up this, like, you know, like, uh, getting us ready to land to import. I'm just going to grab I'm just some gonna, Z's. I'm just going to go over here, yeah. and you're not going to see me until it's ready to go, so I'm then gonna, you can come get me. Like, to me, that's kind of like... It's going to go read my maxim and hang out by myself for a while. It just seems, <laughs> seems eerie. Pun that, intended. That is a pun. That's a, that is a bad lake <laughs> pun. A really bad lake pun. Okay. Oh, dear. I don't know, okay. man. Okay. I apologize to all the listeners out there for that pun. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> I apologize, too. So, yeah. Okay, I think we're... That's Donner, That's hey? Donner. Donner, Donner, Donner was... I was trying to come up with a joke there, but I couldn't come up with it. <laughs> he gone. Donner's done. Donner's done. <laughs> Yeah, that was the... Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. I don't know. 
Now, I mean, we're actually making making light of uh, a lot of these tragic events, aren't we? We're just like oh, no. laughing throughout this whole throughout this whole episode. Oh no. Anyway, I think well. I guess it is. Yeah, it's a tragedy, especially like yeah, all of it's a mystery. Tragedies. It's a mystery, though. Mm-hmm. It's a tragedy, but the the mystery aspect of it, it, it can't. You know, that's yeah. bizarre, man. I, yeah, I'm, it I'm, is. I'm, I'm not finished with Donner. We might have to come back to that uh, for a uh, for some sort of a mini bonus episode where we just do like an expose and we look more into uh, that am, guy specifically. And that's the tough thing. Game. I mean, even with this with this episode, it's like that's why we're doing a two parter because there's so many cool things to cover. Any one of these single shipwreck stories could be, could be in its entire episode. Like the yeah. the Edmund Fitzgerald could easily be its own episode. Oh yeah. The problem is, is that. The world is so full of bizarre, amazing things to talk about that we could do the show every day, seven days a week for the rest of our lives and never run out of stuff to do. Which so instead great. of focusing on just the Great Lakes... We want to give an overview of the whole yeah, exactly. story. exactly. Or yeah. the whole area. The phenomena. The, just this generalized pattern of disappearances that are yeah. unexplained. And I don't even think we mentioned this off the top of the bat, but the Great Lakes Triangle is responsible for thousands more disappearances than the actual Bermuda Triangle yeah. that everyone knows. Yes. Which is fascinating to me. Like it's like over three times the amount of well, disappearances yeah. and tragedies. Like and the, the ship sinking. The, that guy Gourlay that we mentioned at the beginning the, who was doing the research and wrote that book. Mm-hmm. He phrased it as basically like he because he was a pilot, he was experienced in this type of stuff. He literally just said he's like, it is completely baffling, it is inexplicable. Mm-hmm. That a ship, a plane, anyone could get lost on the Great Lakes. Yeah. You're inland North America on fresh water without the vast expanses of the ocean. And you're always within radar. radar, Always within radar contact. Mm-hmm. You, you should be. Should be. Yet, mm-hmm. it, that's not the case. So we've got, I think, a couple more here, right? Like, well, uh, yeah. Lake I, Superior we haven't touched on. Yeah. So that kind of wraps up. Lake Michigan, for the most part, we there already is said that this, once, I think. <laughs> this really interesting story from 1902. Okay. And this is sometimes referred to as the Flying Dutchman of the Great Lakes. Because Very cool. since it's vanishing, it has reportedly been seen over the years wandering That's right. the lake That's as right. a ghost ship. Spooky. Yeah. Uh, okay. So that I am referring to the Bannockburn. And this occurred again in November. November is just notorious, right? Yeah. And yeah. So (laughs) again, you get another slight grounding. This is interesting. So Captain George R. Wood, he was commanding the ship at the time of its sinking. There was a slight delay because of this grounding. Uh, The ship was sailing down, downbound is what they refer to it as. Downbound. 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 Uh, towards Georgian Bay uh, from Fort William, so up north further. And it was seen by several ships as it was cruising. It wasn't it wasn't in any peril. There was no distress or anything, even because even, there was no damage even by the slight grounding. And they did delay it a, a day just so they could be sure of that. And so, and so here, <laughs> it uh, it gets passed by a nearby sailing ship called the Algonquin, okay. which was going upbound. So they're going in opposite directions. Yep. But yeah, it definitely had the Bannockburn in its sights uh, from a distance of about seven miles. And it was basically, he was doing checks on it. So every every minute or so, he would go and put it put his binoculars up and just check their positioning and see how they were doing. Mm-hmm. And he found this 
James McCaw of the the captain of the Algonquin found that her course was totally correct. Beauty, whatever. They're smooth sailing, yeah. so to speak. The story goes that the captain of the Algonquin, when he was viewing through his binoculars, the Bannockburn, he just all of a sudden just lost track of her. Yeah. Just out of nowhere. And he did note her position. It was approximately 80 miles off of this point. It's called Kiwina Point. And then 40 miles off of, um, oh, Isle Royale. That's the ship. That's the island that I was, I couldn't remember the name of earlier. Oh, okay. So that's right. where you see tons and tons of the shipwrecks, including right. the Kamloops. Right. Okay. So he lost track of the ship and he decided to blame foggy weather for visual interruptions. Never sighted the Manic Burn ever again. Hmm. There was one other ship, the Heronic. It was a steamboat, a passenger steamboat. That he was the last to sight the Bannockburn, or what they thought was the Bannockburn, because it was in the night. They only saw the lights from the ship, and it was during a storm that had blown up. So, yeah, it basically is theorized that the Bannockburn, hit, well, it's theorized that it, again, smashed up against an island, like on a shallow reef type of thing. Yeah. There were no signals of distress reported to come from it. It was pretty early, though. So this is 1902. So I don't even know how much... They had like, radio, they though. I mean, they, they, had, had, they the, had their... What's that little thing where you're, like, tapping on it? Like... It's like, it's like oh. pre-radio. Yeah. Just like... Uh, oh, my God. Like SOS type stuff, right? Like where you literally telegraph. just... Uh, telegraph. Yeah, yeah. Telegraphing. So, yeah, they, they, the main theory is that it ran up against this dangerous sort of reef, but, but, but to date, <laughs> the only wreckage found is of this cork life preserver that did wash up on the shores of Caribou Island. And nothing else. And again, like, maybe it could be explained that there was no wreckage found because they could only start, presume, presumably, I'm saying this, they could only start the search and rescue operations in the spring. So this happened in November yeah. to spring. That's about right. four or five months, six months tops. So stuff could have been washed away. And But again, I this actually, is a lake, though. How far is it getting washed away? That's kind of, yeah. I mean, it's a massive there, lake, but I know. Okay, like, so this is interesting, though. I came across some, some evening news. It was from the Buffalo Evening News. It was a local um, periodical of the time. Okay. And it did document this uh, disappearance, vanishing. It first reported on November 28th, and it basically, yeah, it, it reported the sightings from the Algonquin, his account, all that stuff. But uh, a day later, this is a quote from November 29th, it says here, a report received last night was that she, the, the Bannockburn, mm-hmm. was ashore, that the, she was ashore near Miskopitan, seems to be without foundation. So Hmm. there was a belief that it had actually docked somewhere. It was quite a number of days before people actually realized, wait a second, it's not where it's supposed to be docked. And so anyway, it says here, quote, the belief is that the steamer had met with disaster is strengthened by the fact that the steamer Rockefeller, which arrived here today, reported passing through wreckage off Standard Rock. This is supposed to be from the missing boat. The wrecking tugs Boynton and the Favorite have made a search along the north shore of Lake Superior without finding any trace of the Canadian steamer. The accepted theory is that the Bannockburn floundered in mid-lake and went down with all on board. Creepy. Yeah. And they do reference, again, this is um, in December, they write that the first authentic evidence bearing the fate of the steamer uh, was this life preserver. And that's basically where it ends up. Isn't that just like the... 
spookiest item to be found, if you think about just it. Just one life preserver? Yeah. Yeah. Because of what it's used for. Yeah. <laughs> and just the symbolism of it is just kind of spooky to me. Nothing else, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. 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 Very tragic, though. <laughs> it is. Yeah. But it's just another, just, it's, it's, uh, bizarre. All hands on deck. And <laughs> for all these things to happen so much more often than the Bermuda Triangle out in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And for me to never hear about it until we started researching this episode. <laughs> Which probably many people listening to this will have felt the same. Like, if you're yeah. in the East Coast, probably a better chance you've heard of it. But mm-hmm. out on the West Coast, I mean, man, oh man, or does it ever go to show how big Canada is? You know, because we, we like to think that we're, like, up to speed on stuff. <laughs> uh, but there's so much to know. There really is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so that kind of wrapped up the Bannockburn. Like, to date, like, there was an article from 20... 11? Was it 2011 that said, like, yeah, as of now, they're still just the life reserve. Nothing yeah. else. Yeah, people have, like, said they thought they found it, but it's never, nothing's ever Again, been proven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so, I guess the last one. <laughs> I mean, technically, we have sort of two lakes left here, but we've got a few kind of interesting points from, from Lake Erie uh, before we kind of wrap up this part one, I guess. <laughs> Which is so funny. We left. The eeriest lake for last. Ah, 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 Like ah. another dumb pun. That's another <laughs> lake pun. Good. Wait, what was the first one again? There was another one just a minute ago. I can't remember what it was. That's... <laughs> I've already forgot. <laughs> oh, good heavens. Anyway. Okay, so Lake Erie. <laughs> yeah, Lake Erie. We're sort of jumping around a little bit in terms of the dates. Because uh, we did accounts. want to break it up according to the lake, so then we realized, wait a second, they're all connected, and they're all kind of talking about all of them. <laughs> Whoopsies. <laughs> Whoops-a-daisy, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. There were definitely, yeah, some, some instances on Lake Erie as well, uh, where there was an expedition that found the remains of a ship known as the Washington, which was one of the first commercial sailing vessels to um, sail on the waters of Lake Erie, uh, which sank under mysterious circumstances in 1803. Uh And then a few years later is when they actually opened the canal connecting, um, Albany, like New York, the, like connecting New York to Buffalo, like that, that shipping route or whatever. So that was man-made. Uh, I think it was not the, 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 the waterways were connected, but it wasn't necessarily like perfect for shipping, I guess. I, I don't know if they, well, it's like the Panama Canal. Yeah, yeah. Canal. Or maybe it would have just been like the opening, like it's just phrased that way because it just means like, well, it just became regular safe passage through that channel, okay. right? Like it's just sort of like the way of, just the way of phrasing it. Like mm-hmm. it's not as if they literally like blew up, blew open a space with dynamite so people could sail through, you know what I mean? Surprised. I suppose it's possible. I wonder. But this one's actually kind of interesting because... There, it's not actually a shipwreck. Um, although there are shipwrecks, like I just said, on, on Lake Erie, <laughs> there was a really famous train crash along the lake. So the Erie Railroad was built to connect New York City with Lake Erie. In the 1930s, it was shipping all kinds of different stuff for different companies along the lake. Um, you know, things that weren't being shipped by schooners. And then obviously paddle paddle wheelers and steamships began began to be more popular on the lake as well. So, sorry, when was this Washington found? Just so to the Washington, backtrack to what you originally talked okay, about. Okay, well, it sank in 1803. 
So when um, was it actually discovered then? Um, 1990 or 1981 I have here. I don't actually know if that's correct. I ha- It's just next to it from another set of notes. Hmm. I mean, most of these things were found in like the 60s, 70s, 80s, because that's when like in the 1960s, that's when like submergible technologies were getting a lot better. Okay. So dealing with like the really mucky, you know, dealing with the silt down at the bottom and like being able to send down actual like dive teams to bring back up video that you could actually see what it was and like things like that. Mm-hmm. 60s, 70s, 80s, and then obviously 90s. But then 90s is when a lot of it started to get shut off. Like we didn't even really mention that with the um, with the Fitzgerald in 95, I believe it was, they replaced the bell on the ship. Um, oh, I they, they retreat. Yeah. yeah, so we can yeah. come back to that because the families were still alive, obviously, of these men that passed away on the, on yeah, the Fitzgerald. Yeah, it was 1975, so it's Yeah, so it's not even that long ago. Yeah. Um, but in the 90s, um, they cut off the expeditions to the vessel, and uh, they retrieved the ship's bell for the families to right. set up as a memorial on shore, and then they replaced it with another bell uh, with the inscriptions of all the crew on mm. it. And now it's 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 a, it's been cut off, so nobody's... Nobody's been back since '95 to uh, to visit the Fitzgerald, which is kind of so. Okay, sorry. sorry just getting gonna... back to what we were talking about with like Erie. Is yeah. that sorry? Is that connected? Like, was there a cutoff of expeditions too, or? Oh, for the what? For the Washington? Yeah. No, I didn't mention that. No, oh, I was okay. just, I was just, I, I was just. <laughs> I meant... thought you were referring to the expeditions being cut off. <laughs> No, 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 no. Just, you know, pe- people found the remains of the Washington, which sank in 1803. Just an mm-hmm. example of a ship that sank on Lake Erie. That's it. Nothing profound what? other than, <laughs> like, other than the fact it's gone. Why are we talking about this? <laughs> <laughs> because I, it sank, Amber? <laughs> I, is there mysterious like, circumstances? What's going on here? No, I mean, I was just trying to kind of, well... Okay, okay, Miss Lake Erie, give me something good. Give me, I give me some goods. You were the one that looked into Lake oh, Erie. Really? Uh huh. Uh-huh. No, I didn't. I didn't really actually come up with anything like specific, like because again, like it was just like the routes taken were through, like Erie to Huron to Michigan or whatever. I think I have that in all the wrong order right now. Right. But yeah, no, I was just yeah, I was curious if yeah. there was a connection between what you were no. referring to with this. Nope. Here's me. Cursory glance. <laughs> nothing nothing profound for y'all from Andrew today. <laughs> no, um no, literally I just have because we've covered so much so far, um, I just wanted to give some examples. So, like there was in the nineteen thirties there was a railroad explosion on Lake Erie that couldn't be explained. There was a paddle wheeler uh, in eighteen forty one that um, burnt down while traveling along the lake. Nobody knows exactly what caused the fire. Some say it could have been caused from sparks landing in turpentine left out from painters that were working on the vessel. Uh, but, uh, there were 240 people Jeez. that died on that paddle wheeler. So yeah, I mean, like I said, that in, in and of itself could be its own episode, but Ooh, just, just examples as a ghost of, ship? yep. Creepy. Like the same as the one we referred to, the teaser? The teaser, the Bannock Burn. I mean, the Bannock Burn's empty, but the teaser has crew on board, right? Well, and it the, burst into flames. Oh, and it burst into flames, yeah. 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 So, yeah, uh, basically 1850, it was the PG Griffith. So it was on its way from Buffalo, and hmm. it exploded. So I guess, basically, yeah, we can kind of wrap it up by saying that there are a ton of mysterious circumstances involved with many of these either vanishings or just later found shipwrecks. Yeah. 
And a lot of the elements are circumstantial, obviously. A lot of them. It's just conjecture by this point because the real real history has a lot of times been lost. Yeah, it's, it's, it, yeah, a lot of it's just from anecdotal stuff at the time. And then when you're looking back at the 1800s, it's obviously harder. This was the one I really wanted to mention to you. And it's the last thing about Lake Erie that was interesting because it made me think of the, what was the ship that we mentioned earlier that could have been rammed by a steamer? Oh, the Bannockburn. Was it the Bannockburn? Actually, no, no, no. No, it was a different one. It We've was. already covered so much. I know, right? There's, there's but so many. this one's interesting. The schooner. Okay. The Thomas Hume. Right. The Thomas Hume, the schooner. This one was just interesting because it was specific for Lake Erie, but 1852, like I said, advent of paddle steamers. And this one was called the Atlantic. It was rammed by the Ogdensburg, another ship known as the Ogdensburg. And the story goes that the Ogdensburg just, just sailed away, just continued on, sailed away without assisting the ship or its passengers that were drowning. What? As if they didn't even know what happened. Just as if, as if it, as if they had no idea it even happened. Oh. It's just bizarre. And both of these are documented ships that are proven to exist. Absolutely. hundred percent. Hmm. Very strange, right? Hmm. Well, that's just a dick move. It's either the biggest dick move on planet earth or there's something very, very strange there where they are not seeing the same reality that another group of people are experiencing when their ship is going down. Oh, is that kind of where you're leaning? Well, I'm leaning towards maybe there is some sort of political differences or maybe just uh, competition and industry might explain that. Yeah. You're going to ram a ship with another ship like bumper cars. Were they both paddle steamers? I think so. The Ogdensburg? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. The The picture that I had painted in my mind was that it definitely was a little bit, like, the competition was a bit brutal. Obviously, with things like having a passenger ship, that's different than carrying thousands of tons of whatever product, like, ore or, or bushels of wheat or whatever. Yeah, true. So, in that sense, you would think that people would be more level-headed and not... yeah. But that, that is, but kind also of, that you th- is bizarre. It, it's very strange. And then like to your point too, like if people were hurting so bad and it was about competition, well then why wasn't there a rise of piracy on the lake in the 1800s? I mean, as I know it's a lake, but if people are hurting for cash, then ramming down and sinking your competition, sure, that's one way to go Ooh, about maybe it. There but is... robbing them blind would be definitely another way to go about it. But maybe there, maybe there is something like that. Like maybe it's a ghost ship. A ghost pirate around. ship? Ghost pirate ship. It's <laughs> It's uh, That's looting people. Sabotaging ships, making them sink suddenly without any, any sort of. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, I think we're 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 coming into the end here, yeah. Yeah, like there's there are definitely some overwhelming, like for me, theories that dominate others. Yeah, let's hear it. Well, there's definitely the idea that it's a combination of seasonal weather patterns and the idea that people just are overconfident and they think they that they've mastered these areas they think they know them like the back of their hand and they really don't and they put their crew and their like everyone's lives in jeopardy in order to say achieve something like the last run of the season let's get one more in there and then what do you get yeah very true you know like that's that's a more rational look if you like i 
I also, like, this will be more, well, I have a lot of theories related to more so the air. Yeah, it's okay. We're going to save like, the juicy ones for part exactly. two. Exactly. But as far as, I guess, like, there's also the idea of these fish waves. There's the idea of, I say, potentially, like, this. these aren't rift lakes, mind you, but the potential of, say, whirlpools opening up. Yup. And swallowing <laughs> ships, like... Yeah. There's no actual anecdotal stories that, like, visuals, like, that people would testify to of seeing that. Like, there is on Baikal and other areas. Yeah, there's actual accounts of it. I think the Seish waves, Seish waves, Seish waves, essentially what they are, are just anomalous, like, tsunami-esque waves Mm -hmm. that get whipped up in the snap of a finger from... and most of the time cannot be explained by science, basically. Like, there's theories as to how they form, and they definitely take certain conditions to form. But it's there's sort of different circumstances in a bunch of different cases where these supposed sage waves have occurred. And the Bannock, or the, the Fitzgerald is one of the exam- best examples for the potential of a sage wave, where, yeah, it was stormy, mm-hmm. stormy weather, but you had the Arthur M. Anderson sort of just totally fine and... It, the Fitzgerald could have just been hit by all of a sudden, you know, yeah, it's stormy, but stormy, but then all of a sudden you got a 25 foot wave coming over the, over your already sunken in, you know, your, your lowered down ship. Mm-hmm. These sage waves have been reported for hundreds of years. They've been known of on the lake by the indigenous peoples who, who traveled they the lake a really for cool trading. mythology and, surrounding that. Hey, like the yeah. idea that it's almost like a, um, a spirit, not a spirit of the lake, but sort of like, yeah, a spirit residing over over it and it's able to like, it's almost like the the god or the spirit kind of blowing, like, like yeah, like yeah. literally like yeah. blowing their breath and creating this singular yeah. wave that kind of, that's it, a very rudimentary way of explaining that. And I, I'm sorry if I offend anyone, but no, that's, that's, that's inaccurate. Okay. <laughs> but, but it's just so crazy to think about something like this. Like when you think about these types of conditions, like my imagination goes to like Hollywood movies of, you know, the fishing vessel. Poseidon. Out of, yeah. With this freaking massive tidal wave coming up over top of your ship. This is happening. Yeah. This is happening in, in, in Canada. This is interesting <laughs> in here though. I, yeah. Let's just read this out here. So just... Okay, the creation of a seish wave. Mm-hmm. So when you have a storm surge, um, it increases the height of waves as the wind increases. Yeah. So these are often sudden and unexpected, and when combined with dramatic changes in atmospheric pressure or sudden drop in the wind speed, the storm surge can produce a seish wave. Right. And records do show that seish waves have occurred on all five of the Great Lakes. That's right. So this isn't just a myth. No, no, it, it happens. It, it, it's a thing. It's a documented yep. phenomena. It was first scientifically documented 1689. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was the first official so like, it, European documentation yeah. of it. It's been happening for a long time, though, and it definitely would account for some of the uh, of the disappearances, but it's still just this bizarre, bizarre paranormal thing because they come up out of nowhere. And you would think they would cause more damage to a lot of the wrecks? Yeah, if, uh, if it's getting sunk by a tidal wave, there's going to be uh, possibly a stool tipped over or damage to the hull uh, or a mast mm. that's broken, yet we find these ones that are perfectly intact or near perfectly intact. So that doesn't necessarily add up to that. Mm. Um, I think these other theories uh, are better suited for the, uh, the flights. The yeah. vortex and the a magnetic lot of grid. Them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they definitely come into and play with the ships, and we'll rehash it exactly. in part two. Yeah. Uh, but 
in terms of uh, in terms of wrapping up the theories for this part one and just focusing on the ships, I think yeah, I mean something's going on in this triangle that affects the mm. weather and that affects uh, obviously the communication capabilities of the ships between each other, right? Exactly. And uh, for there to be a well, serious lack and, of... And also, you could say, maybe affects the perceptions of the crew, right? Maybe it's that's altering the mo- their reality slightly so that they aren't, exactly. they aren't comprehending all of these um, exactly. dangers and hazards or, or whatever, or, 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 or circumstances. Or even things that are, like, yeah, like, not even that they misinterpret their severity, but that they just don't even see it. Yeah. Like, you hit a ship that you didn't even see it's not That's even there bizarre. right or you you see a ship in your binoculars and you look away for one second and you look back and it's gone yeah you know what i mean but how sudden that's what i'm trying to think like in my head like again like i was saying like well a lot of this stuff occurs a lot slower on ships like huge yeah but that's ships. what makes it even more profound to yeah. lose a ship you're not gonna lose a ship from your binoculars you would think. like that quickly yeah. like you would with within an a, airplane within a right period of several minutes so. yeah i don't know very lots cool. of uh, lots of fun of theories prep for you guys for part two. Yes, and we will get into all those mysteries involved in the air as well. Yes. So, thank you for listening to part one. Yeah. Uh, we did have a few people we wanted to thank. Yes, we do. And, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're slowly trying to get onto all of these different platforms that we our show is posted to and trying to get um, caught up with the reviews and people that have submitted stuff. And we had a few people we wanted to thank this week. Um, I'm not going to say this right. It's Oljo? Oljo? Oljo or Olo? Oljo? From Sweden? From Sweden. And we appreciated your comments. Uh, yeah. Saying that it's very pragmatic, great storytelling. Really appreciate that. So cool to have a review from Sweden, man. Yeah. And then we also had Troy, uh, 1995-12 from the US. Yeah. And this was on iTunes. He says he is loving it so far. Keep up the great content. Sweet. So thank you, Troy. Thanks, Troy. Thanks to both you, Oljo, as well. Really, we do it for you guys. Honestly, it's super fun. It is super fun. And just to get real for a second, like we are human here and some yep. days are better than others. <laughs> yesterday was a really hard day for whatever reason. We were supposed mentally. to record yesterday and we, we were going to record yesterday and we decided not to just because of prevailing <laughs> mental circumstances. Yeah. And so again, like this does tie into even what uh, Bella over at Creepsville Pod was talking about in her yeah. last episode. Like yeah. just making sure you're in a good place mentally definitely because yeah like i said we are only human and yeah it makes a big difference like just reading those two reviews lifted my spirits like exponentially and i really just want to say thank you yeah thanks guys we Mm -hmm. really appreciate it and that's the totally like the mentality of into the portal and what we want to try to like convey for people who are interacting with us on uh, social media and stuff like that too like come chat with us on Facebook and we have a Facebook group mm-hmm. you can join and it's like a safe place to like talk about weird stuff or talk about it yourself is. or whatever and we're just all friends here in this community of podcasting and paranormal and mm-hmm. uh, myths and legends and stuff and uh, it's just been so awesome so far and the response we're getting yeah it it, it make it really just changes our days when we when yeah. we see it it's pretty awesome yeah and on that note I guess um uh, we should mention that Amber and I have been working really hard. We're actually yeah. um, preparing a uh, Patreon page for yeah, you guys. Yeah. We've had an amazing response to the show so far, mm-hmm. and it's just really made us want to do even more. It's just that it takes it takes a ton of time and a ton of research uh, mm-hmm. and effort to put put the show together. We wouldn't have it any other way. It's totally a labor of love. We want to keep pursuing getting better at yeah. what we're doing. Yeah. Including more, yeah, most more. 
production and more uh, storytelling elements. Yeah, like more sound effects, more more yeah storytelling. Yeah, like, yeah more stuff. Just so more all of stuff. that takes a lot of time. Yeah, so we're setting up a Patreon page with some amazing bonus content for we're for really you guys excited. to come check out. Like mini bonus episodes. We're gonna have full length episodes for for different mm. levels of patrons. Um, but even at our lowest levels, like it's really cool stuff, like we're, access to many, many stuff, bonus content. We're going to have a live video feed up all kinds of cool stuff. Exactly. So come join our community. We yeah. really want you to be a part of this with us because without you, it's nothing. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So as always, um, do you want to just give our little, you can reach us at, yeah, you can reach us at, uh, into the portal mailbox at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at into the portal one, the number one. Mm-hmm. And then Amber's handle is Amber Ray 1992. And that is Amber Ray spelled R A E. That's right. Mm-hmm. So add us up on Facebook and, uh, yeah, shoot us a DM. If you have any questions or an idea for an episode or whatever, you can chat with us on there. And then we're on Facebook as well at into the portal podcast. And always you can uh, check out our website into the portal.com where we've got a bookstore out for you guys. Amber's amazing amazing blog that she does weekly up on there and we've just just recently kind of read on the page so it's looking really great so go check that out and Ooh. let us know what you think and as well we are going to have another newsletter released this yes, week that's so right. lots of cool yeah sign tidbits. up for the newsletter because you'll be the first to hear about the new blog and all kinds of other uh, stuff that's happening behind the scenes for the show and uh, upcoming stuff so yep so again thanks for listening to this episode and stay tuned next week where we will be uh, coming back at you for part two of the great lakes triangle mm-hmm